It's the 11th of December, 1936. We're at Broadcasting House, the headquarters of the BBC in London. Harmon Greaswood, a radio announcer, is currently on duty in the studio. Talk has been circulating amongst employees of an impending announcement from Prince Edward. Up until the day before, he had gone by the title of King Edward VIII. This announcement is said to concern the recent controversy surrounding himself and Mrs Simpson and his sudden abdication. These rumours remain unconfirmed, that is, until 2100 hours. Greaswood receives instructions from BBC Director General John Reith that His Royal Highness will indeed be making an announcement on the airwaves in just over an hour's time. The announcement would be prefaced by an introduction from Reith himself. Soon, the time of the announcement arrives. Reith's voice sounds over the speakers. This is Windsor Castle. His Royal Highness, Prince Edward. The microphone crackles with static. And then, the former king speaks. At at long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. You all know the reasons which have, have impelled me to renounce the throne. But I want you to understand that in making up my mind, I did not forget the country or the empire, which as Prince of Wales and lately as King, I have for 25 years tried to serve. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. This speech is said by many to be one of the most consequential of the 20th century and its subject matter is the focus of today's episode. What's the first thing you think of when you think of Britishness? Big Ben? Fish and chips? Maybe even Brexit? Well, for many, that first thing is the royal family, as it's been a key player in the country's history for centuries. However, The notion of a hereditary monarch seems an outdated concept to many in the 21st century. Thanks to numerous public scandals involving its members, the future of the royal family seems more uncertain than ever before. This isn't the first time that members of the royal family have stirred up controversy in the press. In 1936, the scandal surrounding King Edward VIII and his American lover created a constitutional crisis within the UK. It eventually culminated in his abdication, with him passing the throne down to his younger brother, Albert. Had this not happened, history could have played out much more differently. So, this begs the question, 
What would Edward's rule have entailed had he remained on the throne? What would this mean for the future of the royal family? And how would this impact Britain and its empire? All these questions and more will be explored in the following episode. My name's Tom DeLarge, and you're listening to What If King Edward VIII Never Abdicated, in another episode of This Is Not History. Before we can discuss a scenario where Edward remains on the throne, let's cover what actually happened for some historical context. We all know that kings had been ruling the British Isles for centuries. However, the crown's influence had slowly begun to erode over time, with famous milestones like the Magna Carta and acts like the Bill of Rights transferring political power to Parliament. Over time, the monarch's role was reduced to one of largely ceremonial significance. They retained the title of head of state, but they were kept separate from the ongoings of parliament. The king or queen was expected to remain apolitical in order to better represent the British people in their entirety. By the late 19th century, this practice had been well established. Britain's parliamentary democracy and its constitutional monarchy was seen as one of the most stable forms of government ever invented. It's within this context that the future king comes into the picture. Edward Christian George Andrew Patrick David was born in 1894 to the Duke and Duchess of York and was the great-grandson of Queen Victoria. He was given the title of Prince of Wales at the tender age of 16 in 1911 becoming the first in line to the throne when his father was crowned King George V. In the years following the First World War, the prince garnered much public attention while he represented the crown on his various travels across Britain's empire as well as various state visits. He developed a reputation for being more outspoken in his political views than was usually appropriate for a royal. While he indicated wishes to improve living conditions in Britain, he also held deeply white supremacist views against foreigners and non-white subjects within the empire. For example, during his tour of Australia in 1920, he described Aboriginal natives as the lowest known form of human beings and the most revolting form of creatures I've ever seen. The 1920s saw the wealthy, good-looking, famous prince soon become the most eligible bachelor in the country. Salacious rumours quickly spread regarding his numerous affairs with married women. These stories solidified Edward's reputation as a womaniser, but did nothing to help him incur favour with his father, the king. He was apprehensive of the prospect of Edward succeeding him, thinking that he wasn't fit for the role too outspoken in his views, too indulgent in behaviour unbecoming of the sovereign. The king was reported to have said of Edward, After I am dead, the boy will ruin himself in twelve months. Regardless of the criticism he received, Edward continued with his antics throughout the period until 1931, when he was introduced 
to a certain American socialite going by the name of Wallace Simpson. At the time of their meeting, Simpson was married and had already been married once before getting a divorce. By early 1934, it's believed that Edward and Wallace began having an affair. Wallace seemingly held a dominant position in this relationship, who, according to Edward's official biographer, soon had him slavishly dependent on her. By 1935, Edward introduced Simpson to his parents. The king was angered by her debaucherous marital history and the fact that she was essentially a commoner forcing her way up the social ladder. This further strained Edward's relationship with his family and the duties he was destined to inherit after his father's passing. The issue regarding her marital status wasn't just important due to the social mores of the time. Once he was king, Edward would also become head of the Church of England. The church prohibited remarriage if their divorced partners were still living. Seeing that Simpson had divorced once and had another clearly on the way, their marriage would go directly against their code. This issue could be put aside temporarily, however, for Simpson's divorce had not yet been finalised. They'd just cross that bridge when they got to it. On the 20th of January 1936, the morning newspapers bore momentous news for the country. His Majesty King George V of England has died at his Norfolk home. And the news comes as a staggering blow to all the peoples of the British Empire. Through 26 troubled years, through a terrible war, through times of unrest and depression, he has been a sincere and devoted leader, a wise and unselfish ruler, a king who maintained through all the storms of the 20th century the unswerving trust and love of his people. His body was transported back to London to line state for nearly a week before his burial. Edward took the mantle of King Edward VIII. Albert, Christian, George. Andrew Patrick David is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, become our only lawful and rightful liege lord, Edward VIII. He broke tradition, however, when he watched the proclamation of his accession at St James's Palace, accompanied by Mrs Simpson. Ostensibly, political leaders in Britain and the Dominions pledged support for their new king. However, behind the scenes, there were murmurings of discontent. Simpson filed for divorce from her husband in October 1936. By November, the new king met with Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin at Buckingham Palace and informed him of his intention to marry her. He knew the issues with this, so he offered a compromise in which he would remain king, but Wallace would attain no royal titles. Baldwin rebuffed him, saying that should the king go through with the marriage, it would cause a constitutional crisis.
Baldwin laid out three options for Edward. He could either A. Drop the whole idea of marrying Simpson. B. He could marry her against the advice of his ministers and cause the government to collapse through mass resignations. Or C. He could abdicate and pass his royal duties down to his younger brother Albert. The king eventually ended up choosing the third option. After less than a year on the throne, and before his official coronation, Edward signed the abdication treaties on December the 10th, 1936. Did his irrevocable determination to renounce the throne for himself and his descendants, and the said instrument of abdication has now taken effect? His younger brother, Prince Albert, would inherit his position and be crowned King George VI. His eldest daughter, Princess Elizabeth, was now next in line to the throne. The next day, on December the 11th, Edward addressed his subjects in Britain and abroad on a live BBC radio broadcast to explain why he felt compelled to do this. And with that, Edward left Britain the next day. Wallace's divorce was finalised a few months later, and only then could they be together. Edward found little sympathy amongst public figures, who saw this as him putting desire before duty, although the ones who did support him may surprise you. They came from a wide range of backgrounds and political persuasions, and became known collectively as the King's Party. The conservative Winston Churchill, the former Liberal PM David Lloyd George, and the leader of the British Union of Fascists, Oswald Mosley, all expressed dismay at his abdication. With the Duke and Duchess now relieved of their royal duties, they were free to marry. The ceremony took place in France in June 1937. Members of the royal family were forbidden by the King himself to attend. Unable to return to Britain, the couple took to travelling the world. However, their holiday destinations were not necessarily the kind of places you or I would like to visit. Famously, Edward and Wallace visited Nazi Germany in October of that year. They were received by the Führer himself and other members in the upper echelons of the government, like Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Göring. Photographs of the couple doing full-on Nazi salutes were published, which seemed to many as a showcasing of the Duke's pro-fascist leanings. For many in Britain, it was an embarrassment and a display of the former king's ineptitude. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's government had advised the couple against making the visit, as it could be used by the Nazis as a public relations stunt at a time where war with the Allies was looming. Events like this led to questions being raised regarding where Edward's loyalties would lie should another great war break out across the continent. Well, they wouldn't have to wait long for war to commence. With war breaking out in September 1939, the Duke and Duchess were transported back to Britain from their home in France. After the French surrender in 1940, the British government appointed Edward as the governor of the Bahamas 
in a rather transparent attempt to keep him away from the public eye. It's on these islands where the Duke and Duchess spent the rest of the war years. On numerous occasions, he made comments seemingly sympathising with Germany. Edward reportedly said, After the war is over and Hitler will crush the Americans, we'll take over. They don't want me as their king, but I'll be back as their leader. This, of course, never happened. In the post-war years, the Duke and Duchess returned to their homes in France. Edward never held another official role and largely lived off the allowance afforded to them by the crown. His relationship with the rest of the family never recovered and the couple didn't attend the coronation of his niece, Queen Elizabeth II. In the 1950s and 60s, Edward continued to make comments indicating his support for the Nazi regime. He said privately, despite attempts to distance himself from his image as a fascist sympathiser, that he never thought Hitler was such a bad chap. The Duke and Duchess would remain married until Edward's death in 1972. His body was laid to rest in the royal burial grounds, with the Queen and the rest of the royal family attending the funeral. Wallace died a few years later in 1986 and was buried alongside her late husband. In the years following the war, the Duke's reputation soured thanks to his fascistic tendencies and white supremacist views. In short, his legacy has become one of infamy. But what if all this hadn't happened? What if, in an alternative timeline, Edward managed to somehow retain his position and marry Wallace? How would this have played out domestically? How would the relationship between Parliament and the monarch have changed? And could Britain's imperial integrity withstand the strain? Well, let's find out. So, what would need to happen for this alternative history to play out? In my opinion, the scenario I've come up with is the only somewhat realistic path I can imagine where Edward gets to marry Wallace without having to abdicate. Let's go back to that conversation Edward had with Stanley Baldwin in November 1936 regarding his future marriage prospects. Baldwin warned that if Edward went through with the marriage, his government would fall. Now, I don't think he was exaggerating. It's highly likely that the government ministers would have resigned en masse had Edward gone through with it. Something important to note is that the monarch is only allowed to reign over the UK with the consent of Parliament. Should the king act in a manner of such unconstitutionality, it would certainly provoke a drastic response from the government. So, Say that Edward disregards this warning and ploughs on with his plan to marry Wallace. What are the immediate implications of this? First and foremost, this sets the historic course of the monarchy down a far more different path. Edward's younger brother Albert would never be king. There would be no need for him to take over the throne without an abdication, and thus wouldn't be crowned King George VI, and by extension, his daughter Elizabeth would never be crowned either. For Baldwin, he would leave Buckingham Palace feeling dejected. 
Despite highlighting the constitutional chaos this would unleash, he hadn't managed to deter the king from his present course. Once news got around that Edward was dead set on marrying Wallace, members of the government would begin to hand in their resignations. There would be some outliers to the general trend of opposition to the marriage in government. For example, Churchill, a die-hard monarchist, would try and garner support for the couple. These attempts wouldn't come of anything, however, as he'd gather only some 40 MPs to his side. This would damage his reputation within the party, and he'd fall even further into the political wilderness. Within a week, the number of resignations would totally diminish the government's ability to exert power. Without a functioning government and parliament in disarray, Baldwin would have to resign, marking the fall of the government. By this point, it becomes very difficult to see how the marriage could have gone on at all. In a more realistic scenario, I think that Edward would have been forced out of his position, either from within the family or by parliament somehow, which would have been unprecedented. However, for the purposes of the episode, let's continue on the assumption that the king would remain in his position, however tenuous. Parliament would scramble to form a new government, and an election would have to be called for January of 1937. I think the Conservatives would keep Baldwin as their leader. It wasn't for lack of trying on his part that the government had collapsed, and the public would probably see it like that as well. Anyway, this would be an extremely quick election campaign, so as to resolve the tumultuous chaos as quickly as possible. Each party's platform would be run on dealing with the constitutional crisis at hand, and would be operating on damage control. Each party, other than the King's Party, a new party formed by Edward's loyal followers, which would fare badly in this election, would seek to tackle the issue differently. Traditionalists would pledge to decrease the King's influence over politics, while left-wing parties like Labour would find themselves more and more inclined to support the abolition of the monarchy entirely. Already, you can see that this scenario has already taken a pretty major turn. These would be the immediate ramifications of the King's decision not to abdicate on the domestic front within Britain. However, I don't think it would end there. The Dominion governments within the Empire were also unhappy with the King's decision to marry Simpson. Increasing autonomy away from Parliament for these Imperial territories had been an ongoing process for decades now. So, for the governments of Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, their shared monarchy was the only remaining constitutional link binding their countries to Britain. With the flagrant disregard of the wishes of the elected government in Britain, and of those in the Dominions, this would surely damage the integrity of the Empire. Which begs the question, could this be the last straw for the Dominion government? Well, in answer to that question, I would say yes, and also no. Let me elaborate. The Dominions weren't some large monolithic block which all thought and acted in the same way. The extent to which that they would distance themselves from Britain would depend on their own individual situations. Take Canada, for example, the largest of these territories under the British Crown. Canada isn't isolated. Their neighbour to the south, the United States of America, might have seemed to them as a more reliable long-term ally and trade partner when compared to Britain. In light of the turmoil engulfing the UK, 
I think Canada would seek immediate patriation from the mother country, removing the king as the head of state and becoming a wholly independent nation outside of the Commonwealth. While a situation like this in regards to Canada might be most likely, places more far aflung, like Australia and New Zealand, may be more hesitant to outright leave the Commonwealth for fear of increased isolation. There would however be a growing desire to relinquish themselves of British influence. Moving on back to the domestic front in Britain, while dominions begin to break with the crown, the general election would have just taken place. Going by the results of the 1935 election, in which the Conservatives won a hefty majority, I don't think the results for this alternative 1937 election would be that different. The public's ire would be directed toward Edward for single-handedly causing the collapse of the previous government, so I don't think the Conservatives would fare that badly. Perhaps the Labour Party would make some gains through capitalising on the spike in anti-monarchist sentiment, however I'm sure that Baldwin and the Conservatives would still maintain a working majority. So, it's January 1937, and Baldwin is Prime Minister again. Step one for him would be to reassemble his cabinet to deal with the immediate fallout of the crisis. Parliament would attempt to assure the Dominions that stability would return and the crisis would soon be abated. They would keep as many of these partners within the empire as they could, unless they had cut off ties with Britain already. Simultaneously, they would turn their attention to Edward. The situation had completely spun out of control within a few months, thanks to this one man's stubbornness. The eyes of the government, the opposition members of parliament, the church, the press and the public would all be on Edward, blaming him for what he had caused, and they'd want consequences. Parliament would begin debating and passing legislation which would limit the status of the crown and remove the monarch's influence. Traditional ceremonies where the involvement of the monarch had no real legal requirement would begin to be phased out as well. These measures wouldn't just be aimed at the sovereign, but at the royal family at large. Land owned by them would be repossessed by the state, and titles for minor royals would be removed. This process of limiting the monarchy would take years. There wouldn't be one big piece of legislation doing away with the whole institution, but it would be death by a thousand cuts for the monarchy. Edward and Wallace would get married after her divorce was official, but she wouldn't be made queen. They would intentionally be kept away from public affairs and wouldn't carry out the duties usually expected of them. People's attention would begin to turn away from domestic affairs and the fate of the monarchy as the storm brewing in Europe would begin to thunder. The Second World War would obviously still break out in 1939. The British would join the French in declaring war on the Germans, but they'd be weaker than in real life due to the fragmentation of its empire. In real life, when the Germans were threatening to invade the island itself, the royal family stayed in London for the duration of the Blitz and visited civilians who were suffering. This helped the country's morale and boosted the popularity of the monarchy. However, with both the public and government opinion turning against the monarchy, Edward's visits would be kept to a minimum. As much of a boost as King George VI was to keeping people's spirits up during the war in real life was, I don't think anyone realistically thinks that this was decisive in winning the war. 
in this alternate timeline, the Allies would still win the war around the same time, despite having Edward on the throne. In the post-war years, the Labour Party would still sweep to power in the 1945 general election, and would begin the process of rebuilding. Labour's revolutionary manifesto would still promise nationalisation of industries, the creation of a national health service and a social security system, but it would also include one extra pledge. The existence of the monarchy would be put to a public vote. People would be able to decide whether they wish to keep the status quo or to live under a republic. I can see this referendum taking place within the next year. Considering the vast appetite for change and the fresh starts, on top of the scandals and crises that the current king had been at the centre of in recent years, the public would vote in favour of abolishing the monarchy and transitioning the government to a republic. I realise that this is already such a massive departure from what could realistically happen, but it's an intriguing idea and there are loads of directions we could take this. What would the country rename itself as? The United Republic of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Maybe. Would the Prime Minister take over as head of state? Or would a new position be created, like President? I'll leave the specifics down for you to decide. Overall, I think the main thing to take from this scenario is that if Edward carried on through with his wedding, it would have almost definitely damaged the monarchy's standing. Realistically, there would be no way for him to remain king after the government resigned, because he certainly would have been removed. If he did somehow manage it, his brashness would reflect poorly on the whole institution, and the country would decide to get rid of the whole lot of them in the post-war years of rebuilding. For monarchists, they may see this as a nightmare scenario. For republicans, potentially a missed opportunity. Regardless of your political persuasions, I think that we can all agree that had this scenario played out, it would most definitely have changed the course of British history. And that's where we'll leave it for today's episode, in which I imagined what would have happened had Edward VIII never abdicated. This Is Not History is written, produced and narrated by me, Tom DeLaghi. Be sure to follow on Twitter at NotHistoryPod if you'd like to send ideas for potential episodes, and feel free to message me if you disagree with anything I've theorised in this scenario. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you in the next episode of This Is Not History.